As we turn to hear from God's word this morning, we seek to receive it with reverence and humility. The summons to the word found in your bulletin helps us to do just that. Let's read it together. Wisdom is supreme, therefore get wisdom. Though it cost all you have, get understanding. Esteem wisdom, and she will exalt you. Embrace her, and she will honor you. This morning's scripture reading is taken from Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, through chapter 2, verse 5. In the Blue Pew Bible, it can be found on page 1015. Once again, the text is Colossians 1, 24, through 2, 5, on page 1015 in our Pew Bibles. Now hear the word of the Lord. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Thank you, Kirk. Let's go ahead and uh, begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, <clears throat> may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, those of you kids, remember we started the, the service this morning by talking about spinning around, right? You stand in one place and you spin around, you do it long enough, and you try to walk, and inevitably what happens is that you begin to lean to one side or the other, right? You, you, you start going like this, you, you fall over, and you lean and then fall, right? Well, there's actually something that pilots face. This is true. Listen to this. Especially in the military, if you're flying a military aircraft, let's say you're in the Air Force, and you're flying a jet aircraft, and you're zooming around at, at fat high speeds, it's true that if you are in a tight turn, listen to this, let's say you're going straight, but then you take your throttle and you move to the left and you start to turn, that your body, this is, this is very important, your body gets used to the turning. And so much so that you're in a turn and your body thinks you're actually going straight. And that may be kind of funny or silly at first, but actually it can be very dangerous because it means you're going in a direction that you're not really going. In fact, so much so that pilots have actually crashed their planes, have actually died 
because of this. In fact, there's something called the graveyard spin. Often when pilots are at a high altitude, let's say they're at 30,000 feet or 20,000 feet, the way that they ascend, if they want to stay in the same place and, and go straight down, they ascend by going in a spiral. And that spin or spiral, as they're turning, they, use, they get used to turning, and they don't realize that they're turning anymore. And so what happens is they think they're going straight when they're actually turning. And they're actually only turning, they're going down. And the down, that's why it's called a graveyard spin, is because they end up crashing into the ground because they lose their sense of direction. In fact, I had a, a friend of mine when I was in the military, I had a friend of mine who actually was called up to investigate a, 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 a crash. It was an A-10, um, A-10 Warthog, as they're called. It was an aircraft, a, a close air support aircraft. And um, that, uh, the, the aircraft had taken off in the middle of the night and had, had, had climbed up and began to turn. And it was turning and kept turning. And often when you're turning, you don't realize you're actually slipping and losing altitude. And so as, as, the, as the pilot began to turn, kept turning, he simply crashed right into the ground. Never knew it, had no idea what happened. But it was, it was, it was discerned, the reason for that was, was the pilot error that he trusted into this. He trusted his sense of direction, his sense of how he felt, instead of trusting what? Yeah, his, his gauges, his instruments. See, kids, on the front, on the, actually on the airplane itself, in the cockpit, you have all kinds of instruments that show you, that tell you where you are and what direction you have. And so even if you feel like you're going straight, you have instruments that tell you that you're actually turning left or you're turning right. They orient you. Now listen, this morning we're going to talk about the way that the Christ orients us, the way that he is like, acts very much like those instruments in a cockpit that help us to know where we really are. And this is especially important. Listen to this, kids. I want to talk to you. I'm talking to adults as well. It's especially important because we live in a culture today that says again and again and again, always trust your feelings. Always trust your feelings. In fact, you can find, I love Disney movies. I love animated films. I might watch them with my kids. But again and again and again, often in animated films and Disney films, it's about always trusting your feelings. Right? And think of the story like Little Mermaid. I, love, I grew up singing all the songs in Disney's Little Mermaid. I love the show. But it's about this dad who's this mean authoritarian father and this young teenage mergirl or mermaid who, who just, she knows what's best. And that's how the story plays out. She, she's, she knows what's best. She's falling in love. And, and, and what does dad know? Right? And, and dad isn't perfect. But as this notion, that youthful feeling, that were to use a more technical term, lived experience. This is my lived experience. And this is how I feel. And that somehow trumps everything else. That, that is the ultimate final authority. That if we are flying our lives, navigating our lives according to how we feel, we can crash in some big ways into uh, the ground of reality. So this morning, I want to talk about this way in which Christ serves as our compass. As a compass, I'll talk about that analogy more. But many of you kids, if you don't know what a compass is, a compass is something that helps orient you. It tells you which way is north, which way is east, which way is west, south, etc. It tells you where, you where you're actually going. Because often we can feel like we're going in a certain direction, 
and really be going in a very different one. And we need that way of navigating life. And Christ is very much the one who can do that for us, as Paul wants to suggest. And, and it makes it all the more difficult in our, in our time. I'm going to just mention this briefly. I read, not long ago, I read a book called The Death of Expertise. It's by, by a guy named Tom Nichols. And in Death of Expertise, he speaks about how, especially in Western culture, and in America specifically, that no longer do Americans really give much clout to experts. In fact, this past year and a half or so, as we've gone through the pandemic, as we've gone through a lot of civil turmoil, we think of how polarized our nation is, partly because the experts whom we trust don't agree themselves, or that we appeal to different experts, or even so much so that the experts themselves are wrong. And this crisis of expertise, he says, is due to five different things. First, he says, the crisis of expertise, the sense in which Americans just don't trust the experts anymore. First, it comes from this idea of self-trust. Because human beings are just too often, they're just too confident in their own opinions. They're like, ah, I got this. I know what's best, right? Second is schooling. Uh, Nichols talks about how schools of higher education today, how the ivory tower has become too consumerized. In other words, it's in, in higher education today, the customer is always right. And that turns education almost on its head. In fact, I have, I have friends who are in the world of higher education, and so many of them today are scared of their students, of saying the wrong thing, of offending their students about all manner of controversial issues today. They're scared. They won't, they won't actually talk. And so if the, if the student's always right, how is there going to be any sense of expertise, a sense of learning, a sense of growth? So self-trust, schooling. Third is cyberspace. Right? You can go to the Internet, and you can find anything you want to believe. In fact, instead of being on this massive source of, of knowledge and of learning, too often the internet is simply used as a, as a, as a means of confirmation bias. I'm going to go find out what I already know to be true. I'm going to find an article, and I found an article online, and therefore, see, it, it, it proves my point. The fourth one is the news media. The news media itself is so biased, is so particular, is so diversified, and so competitive that today it's, it's, you don't know who to trust. Where are you supposed to go? Who, is the, who are the experts? You can find a talking head to say almost anything. And finally, the itself, he says, the death of expert, in the death of expertise, he says this crisis comes from quote-unquote science itself. That is from the experts. So too often, the experts are too cocky. More often, they need to be saying three very important words. I don't know. Right? Imagine if, if this past year, if the pandemic, if more of our public health officials had just said, yeah, we're not sure. We don't know. But instead, they, so many of them came out with these absolutes. This is what we must do. We need to do this. We need to do that. This is, this is the situation. Here are our models. And the result of that was in a tremendous erosion of trust, both in our political um, leaders, but also in our public health officials, and a cynicism about where is this all going, what's driving this, and the politicization of our, of our public health. Uh, what a tragedy that was. So the, the Apostle Paul, and where, where does all that leave us? It leaves us in this, asking the question, whom can we trust? 
right? Who's, who's going to be our compass? How do we really, what do we really know, and how are we going to know it? And the Apostle Paul this morning is going to root us in ancient wisdom, the ancient wisdom of a person named Jesus. And this morning, let's go ahead and turn there to the text that, 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 Kirk, that Kirk read for us. And just by way of review, because I want you to see the flow of thought, that in verse 3 of chapter 1, Paul praises God for the fruitfulness, the, the, the productivity, if you will, of the, 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 the Colossians. Verse 3, he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ and your love for all of God's people. It's a beautiful, beautiful statement. He says, I've heard of your faith, your loyalty, your devotion in and to the person of Jesus, and I've also heard of the love, the genuine love, not just some sort of cordiality, not just some sort of niceness, but you guys actually love each other. You're committed to each other, sacrificing, caring. It matters to you how others are doing in your community. You genuinely care for each other. And he, he thanks God, he praises God for it, and it invites him into greater prayer. Verse 9, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continue to ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will. And he, he prays that, that they, they would be filled with the knowledge of his will. Why? So that they could please the Lord. Verse 10, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. And this whole goal of pleasing Jesus is because Jesus is one who has provided them with protection and with peace. It speaks of how in verse 12, it speaks of a father who has, verse 13, who has rescued them, rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loved. He speaks of this transfer that's taken place. If I can just, this past week, um, I was recalling the story of a woman named Josephine Butler, Josephine Butler lived in the Victorian era in England. She was the wife of a, uh, I think I've mentioned her before, she's the wife of an Anglican minister. And one day in their, their family, tragedy struck. And her, one of, well, her daughter, she had four children, one, one daughter, a young girl. And this young lady fell from the banister in their home and, and landed on the, the hard surface of the floor and, and died. And as you can imagine, you know, the parents were just, uh, completely devastated by this. And she, was, she secluded herself for about six months to a year uh, just in, in complete uh, uh, grief, just overcome by grief. And then and eventually she emerged and the Lord placed in her heart the idea of, of, of thinking, you know, as much suffering as I have, what if I were to go out and find people who've suffered just as much, if not more, than I have. And she does. And she seeks out persons in Manchester and England. Uh, in fact, she seeks out um, these women that she finds on the streets, women who have been cast out of their homes, women who have been cast out of, of, their, of any possibility of work of any kind, mostly because they, um, of, of, they, they, most of them in their, in, their, in their poverty have turned to prostitution. And in the midst of their prostitution, have acquired various diseases that remove them from even from brothels. So she would find these women who were just at the, at the end of their robe, with not, the utter contempt of culture, and having nowhere to go, and she would love them and care for them. In fact, sometimes this is so beautiful. Let me just get to illustrate the point here. Sometimes she would actually. Many of them were they, they had terminal illnesses, and she would help them die 
with dignity and with a sense of love and hearing the, the good news of Jesus Christ, who's a friend of tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. But sometimes these women would recover. They would recover from their diseases. And, but of course, because of the stigma attached to, uh, to, to their story, what this woman was able to do, what, what Butler was able to do, is actually she had contacts over in America. And this is so cool. And she would actually take these young ladies and she would send them to America where they could start over, just completely start. No one would know their previous life. They could start over. They could be maids. They could be servants of some sort. And they could completely get a complete start at life. And there was this transfer from the old world of England, the old world where their, their, old, their sins, their past would haunt them. They would be known in a certain way. In fact, they could even be imprisoned for, for, for prostitution. But they would be transferred to a new dominion, to a new place where all, none, none of the old, none of the authorities, none of the influences from their old world would have any could have any say. In America, they were safe. They had a new identity and a new and a new and a new government. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here in, in, in chapter 13. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, and he has brought us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then what he does is he says, well, that, that, that new dominion, that kingdom of the Son he loves, that, that place of safety, that new world, how safe is it from the powers of the old world? And that's why he speaks in verse 15 for the next five verses about the nature of Christ's authority over the powers of darkness. He talks about how Jesus is one who rules over all, who reigns over the, for, over the powers of darkness. And then, and then at, the, at the end of that, he says, look, you are protected, you are at peace, you have been reconciled, verse 23, if you continue in your faith established and firm. That is, if you persevere and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under the heaven and in which I, Paul, have become a servant. And so this transition point in verse 24 is from the message of the gospel to the messenger of the gospel. Paul says, look, he said, you are safe in this new world. You are protected if you persevere, if you continue to believe the message that I've given you. And he says, the message I've given you, I want you to know it's reliable because the messenger himself is reliable. And that's where Paul speaks of his, he talks about himself in verses 24 and following, which is the text that Kirk read for us. And so I want to just walk through these verses here. First, Paul speaks of himself as a minister who ministers first at great cost to himself. Paul's ministry is at great cost to himself. Verse 24, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. Now he's saying here, and here the suffering he's referring to is his imprisonment. Paul is writing from prison. He's been persecuted. He's been unjustly thrown in prison. And here he is rejoicing, saying, look, I am okay suffering for this because I know it's for your good. I'm doing this for your sake. And he says, I fill up in the flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Why? For the sake of his body, which is the church. See, it's for the sake of you Colossians, it's for the sake of the wider church. He says that I'm willing to do this ministry, to willing to be, to do this ministry at great cost 
to myself. In fact, if you look at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1, he says the same thing. He says, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. So he's speaking of his desire there is that they, verse 2, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love. So he's, he's, serve, he's, he's enduring, his ministry is at great cost to himself because it's for the sake of, for the encouragement, listen to this, of Christians that he's never even met. Isn't that incredible? He's never even met, met them at all, and yet he's, he's doing this for their sake. Now I want you to see here something that's very important. That Paul, the more Paul, the greater the cost of Paul's ministry, the more credibility his message has. See, I can stand up here all day and tell you about this message, but it's only until I've loved you and served you at cost. It's only until we've served others. And see, let me say it a different way. It's when we suffer that we find out who we really are. I can become a minister and say, oh, I'm going to love people, I'm going to care for them. But it only, I only really discover who I really am and how much I really love and how committed I am to you when I begin to suffer, when I'm misrepresented, when I'm falsely accused, when, um, when, I'm, um, you know, when in some way I'm inconvenienced in some way, where there's a sacrifice that must be made. So first, Paul's ministry is at great cost to himself. And let me just mention, the second half of verse 24, uh, chapter 1 says this. It says, uh, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. What is he talking about there? What is lacking of Christ's afflictions? Well, as we're going to see here in verse, verse, the answer to that comes from verse 25, where we learn not only that is, is Paul doing something, his ministry at great cost to himself, but he's doing it because he's been called by God. Look at verse 25. He says, I have become its servant, that is a servant of the church, by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God. In other words, he says, I have received a commission, a calling from God to serve you, to proclaim God's word. And in other words, he's saying here, I have this unique calling. Paul had this unique calling as the apostle to the Gentiles. And his, his ministry was to complement Christ's ministry. His suffering was, the, was to combine with Christ's suffering in a way that actually would bring about reconciliation for the Gentiles. And that's exactly what he's talking about here. He's saying that, look, apart from my ministry, Jesus never actually left, uh, left, left the area of, of Judea. I mean, he was in Palestine and in Judea. He never actually went outside of that. And, God, and Jesus appears to Paul and says, Paul, you are the guy to take this message to the rest of the world. And so it's through the, the afflictions of Christ and through the, the afflictions of Paul that there is this reconciliation of the nations. And so Paul is, in a sense, completing what Christ has begun here. And so first, Paul's ministry is at great cost to himself. Second is that he is accountable to God or he's called by God. Third, Paul communicates, listen to this, this is just so important, a cryptic otherworldly message. Look at the last part of verse 25. He has this commission that God has given him to, to you uh, to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The word, so his, his job is to communicate God's word, and then he elaborates on the nature of that word. Verse 26, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, 
but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. Paul says that God's word is something that had to be revealed. It had to be made known. It had to be disclosed. What he means by that is he's saying it's, it's God's word, God's, God's hope, God's wisdom is so countercultural, it's so counterintuitive that we would have never found it ourselves. Now that's just so important to understand because for so many people, they look at Christianity and think, this is the weirdest thing. This is so dumb. This is so strange. Because it's so countercultural. Because it's so counterintuitive. The way that we do things like marriage, the way we do things like sex, the way we do things like money, the way we do things like relationships, the way we do things like justice, how we think of all these things is often very countercultural. It's very counterintuitive because it comes it's otherworldly. It comes from outside. Now, I, I mention this because it's only through God's word that we are kept from being lemmings of our culture. It's only through God's word that we are kept from being sh- cultural sheep. Does that make sense? In fact, if you would, just turn to the right real fast. Turn to the book of Ephesians. I'm sorry, to the left, the book of Ephesians where Paul speaks to something very important here, speaking of how, how Christ builds up his church. And he says in chapter 4, uh, where, where is it here? Chapter 4, verse 11. This is so powerful. He speaks of how Christ ascended from, he was raised from the dead, and there in verse 11 it says, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets and evangelists, the pastors and teachers, to equip his people for works of service, so the body of Christ may be built up, and that we would, until we all reach unity in the faith. And he speaks, okay, so he speaks of these apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers who are given to equip God's people to teach them why. Verse 14, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. We live in a culture today where people are are infants blown all over the place by every wind, every wave of teaching. Whether it's Dr. Phil, whether it's Oprah, whether it's, you you name their their latest radio person, radio person, the latest Fox News or CNN pundit, whoever it may be, people are blown regularly just by the latest trends in higher education. They're just blown all different manner of ways. And, and these trends, these different ways of seeing life, they come and they go. And Paul is saying here, do you really want to be someone just, uh, just tossed around? You want to just be a sheep of the latest fad? He's saying rather in place of that, he's calling us to this ancient, very countercultural, very, very counterintuitive word. And so, so first, he's, Paul says, I, my ministry is at great cost to, myself, to himself. His ministry is, is one that's been called by God. Third, it's a, it's a message of, that is very cryptic, very otherworldly uh, in, its, in its origin, very countercultural, very counterintuitive. It had to be revealed to us. And, and then, then, then he continues after that in verse 27 to speak of the, the incalculable worth of his ministry. Again, let's go back to Colossians 1. In verse 27, he says this, to, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. 
He's saying to understand this mystery, to know the gospel itself, is to, is to have an incalculable wealth. In fact, he expounds on that in, uh, verses, in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. He says, My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. Listen to this. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul is saying that in the gospel, in the person of Christ, you find fullness of complete understanding. You find all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I want to ask you this. Maybe that you have accepted Christ's welcome. I want to ask you, have you accepted Christ's wisdom? Do you live live your life according to his way? Have you discovered? Let me just give you a few examples. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells a story of a parable, the parable of the unmerciful servant. And in that parable, it's a parable about a man who is, oh, he owes his master 10,000 talents of gold. It's an incalculable sum. It's, an, it's, a, it's, a, it's a ludicrous sum. He goes in there. He begs the, the master to forgive him. The master does. And then the servant goes out, and he sees a fellow servant who owes him 100 denarii, which is a lot of money, but not remotely the amount of 10,000 talents. And he demands the man pay him back. The, the, the fellow servant says, look, uh, give me some time. I'll pay it back. The man refuses, unmerciful, and he throws the guy in prison. Well, the master hears about this, and he, and he, and he calls him in and says, you wicked servant, I, I, I forgave you all of that, and yet you, you wouldn't forgive your fellow servant. And the point, of the, the point of the parable, of course, is this very idea that if we know God's mercy, we'll show that mercy to others. And listen, listen, I can't tell you, when you embrace the fact that you are a 10,000-talent sinner, it will transform your life. You know Why? One, you'll be far more patient with people. It will transform your marriage. Because instead of constantly thinking that you're better than your spouse, you'll be like, oh my goodness, I am just as bad, if not worse. Most divorces I know, they come from people who act, one person thinks that they're just way better than the other person. And if you embrace the wisdom of Jesus in that parable, you will never do that. You'll never be thinking, you know what, I am so much better than this person because you'll know I am a 10,000-talent sinner if you actually believe that. See, when you embrace the humility of the critique of the cross, 10,000 talents of sin that I owe, the pride just dissipates. And the pride that causes self-righteousness, that ends relationships, that leaves us alone, it's gone. You can get so much mileage out of that if you embrace the wisdom of Christ. Let me give you another example. Uh, Matthew, in, in Matthew uh, 18, uh, Jesus', Jesus, Jesus uh, disciples come to him and say, who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? And Jesus brings before them a little child. He says, you this, this child, if you want to be great, you must become like this child. Jesus is saying, the disciples are wanting to know, how do I be a big deal? How do I have status, meaning, value, importance? And Jesus' answer is, you become a servant, a lowly servant. Because he says, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now, I don't know about you, the amount of mileage that I have gotten out of there is huge. Because guess what? I want status. I want, I want to be great. But here's the thing, the way the world defines greatness is by how many, how many followers you have on Twitter. 
It's by how, what your titles are, how much money you make, all these things that I can't necessarily do, that most of us can't do. And in fact, most of those people who have those fell into them. They got there by accident. Happened to be the right place at the right time. And so if I live according to the world's standard of greatness, I will live as a failure. I will be in just a sense of like, I am worthless. But if I embrace the criteria of Jesus of greatness. I know how to become a servant. I know how to be a lowly servant. I know how to just do small acts of service because Jesus says on that day, those who humble themselves, they will be exalted. And those who are the big deals with the big Twitter accounts, whatever it is, they will be humbled. So that's just a beautiful way. We say, you know what, I, I can actually pursue greatness. I just want to give you two examples there. The way that the wisdom of Jesus transforms our lives. And I'm going to ask you, listen to this. Have you applied the wisdom of Christ to every aspect of your life? Has it transformed the way you think about money? The way that you think about your body? Right? Our own self-image. You know, the sense of we look at our culture, and the culture has all these demands of what a woman's body should look like, of a man's body. What does Jesus have to say about our bodies? What does he have to say about aging? What does he have to say about retirement? What does he have to say about parenting? I mean, the way that Jesus calls us to parent is so countercultural. It is so counterintuitive. And yet it's genius. It's brilliant. It's amazing. And I can't tell you how, when you, when you do surrender your parenting to Christ, how, how much more peace there will be in your home, how much happier your children will be. It's incredible. So I'm asking you, have you this morning, have you not only experienced and, and interacted with the welcome that Jesus offers in the gospel, but the wisdom? Are you living your life with him as your compass? Now, finally, let me just mention one more thing here. There's numbers, there's so much, this passage is so rich. So Paul talks about how his, men, his ministry is at great cost to himself. Second, it's, it's a calling from God. Third, he communicates a cryptic message. But then he mentions how. How does he actually communicate this message? Look at verse 27 or 28. In verse 20 he sa- 28, he says, Him we proclaim admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. I love that. Paul gives us a sense of how he preaches, right? And this is what he, how he preaches. It's him. He is the one we proclaim. That is Christ. Christ, the one who is sovereign over all, who is sovereign over death and, and, and over our disobedience and over the demonic realm. He, he, he who is sovereign in every way, he is the one we proclaim. And he says, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, I want you to notice two things. When Paul preaches, the first thing he does is confront. Did you catch that? He, says he, he admonishes. He warns. Is that what you want? Do you want a preacher who's going to warn you? Who's going to admonish you? Who's going to confront you? That's what Paul did. He was fearless. You know why? Because when we warn someone, we confront someone, we're loving them. Now, confronting is not condemning. See, our, our culture today hears the word confront, and they think, oh, condemning. And the, word, the, difference is, the difference between confronting and condemning is huge. When you condemn someone, you're saying, I have no hope for you. 
when you confront someone, you're saying, there's still time. There's still time. Your past doesn't need to dictate your future. But you're in danger now. You're really in danger. So Paul would confront them as he's proclaiming Christ, as he's communicating this countercultural, counterintuitive word, he's confronting them. But not only is he confronting them, listen to this, he's captivating them. He says he teaches everyone how? With all wisdom. See, wisdom is knowing what's best in life. He's captivating. He's saying, look, Christianity is better. It's better. Obeying is better than disobeying. That's how he, he woos them in, saying, look, this is wise. This is smart. I mean, Jesus did the same thing, right? Jesus' parable of the wise and foolish builders. He says, look, Jesus says, if you hear my words and obey them, you put them into practice, you will be like the wise man who builds his house on rock. So the winds come and the waters rise. Guess what? He's just fine. He's smart. It's the, it's the better way to live life. So Paul's saying, look, when I proclaim Christ, I do it confrontational. I'm going to warn you. I'm going to challenge you. But I'm also going to captivate you. I'm going to woo you. I'm going to bring you in and say, hey, this is actually better. And then so he, so he so first he confronts, then he captivates. But he does this. Look how inclusive it is. It's wonderfully inclusive. Three times he uses the word everyone in verse 28. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. The Greek actually says we admonish everyone and teach everyone so that we can present everyone. Everyone here means Jew, Gentile. It means old, young. It means all the people that the, the, that the culture would consider inconsequential or unimportant. Paul says, no, I'm here to proclaim the gospel to everyone. Okay, he does this, verse 20, he does this in a way, he's basically, verse 20, we mentioned verse 29 here, he says, to this end I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. He's saying, look, this ministry, that this calling that I've got, there's no way I can do it on my own. The only way I can do this is through, the, through God empowering me to do it. Again, Paul can't do, it, Paul can't do what God calls him to do on his own strength and his own ability. So let me just summarize so Paul, at great cost to himself, as one called by God, communicates a cryptic, an otherworldly word, a word that is countercultural, a word that is counterintuitive, a word that is of incredible value, a word that gives us access to a treasure, a storehouse of wisdom and knowledge. Let me close with this story. Um, I think I've used this before, but I'm using it because I think it's so, so important. When I was in survival training uh, in the Air Force, we were, at, we were basically asked to learn the basics of, of orienteering, of land navigation, and to do so at night because the idea was the scenario was that you were a downed pilot in enemy territory and you would have to evade during the night so that you could uh, work your way back to, uh, to uh, friendly territory. And so um, they did this, even though as a pilot you'd probably be by yourself, the outer for safety reasons, you did this uh, in groups of three. So there were three of us, so I was with two other guys, and there we were in the middle of the night, it was cold, it was freezing, we were in the Rocky Mountains, uh, about 10, 12,000 feet. And, um, and I, was the, I was the lead, I was the first of the three, and the first guy is the guy with the compass. He's the guy that's supposed to like, actually navigate, this is where we're going. And the guy behind is you, the guy who's counting the number of steps you're taking. 
So you have some relative idea of how far you're going. Because often if you need to go from point A to point B, you can't always go straight because like, there might be a mountain in the way or something. So you have to figure out how to go around and calculate, etc., all, all the different ways of, of, of navigating that. And several times over several different nights, um, as I was leading and they were counting, um, they would stop. And my, the guys I was with would stop and say to me, look, I don't think this is the right way to go. It just feels like we should be going this way. And I, of course, I'm like, the compass. And I'm like, what do you mean? The compass is to go this way. They're like, no, 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 no. It feels like we're fading to the left. It's like, no, this is the compass. Like, this is where we go. And finally, I got to the point where they were so upset. They said, like, look, and I said, look, you go your way. I'm going to go my way. <laughs> and they, of course, they, they eventually capitulated and came with me. But this idea of living life just by how we feel, especially how we feel in the moment, it can kill you. It can be miserable. And Paul here is calling us to say there is one who is crucified for you, who is love, who is welcome. He, he, Jesus welcomes. You read through the Gospels, he welcomes all the wrong people. All the people who are the worst, the lowest, the outsiders, the outcasts. He invites them. He receives them. The lowest of the low, he re-welcomes them. But not only does he welcome them, he offers them wisdom. A way of living life that the world does not understand. That the world rejects, the world looks upon and, and, and just makes fun of and uh, mocks and ridicules. My question for you is, are we following Christ as our compass in every aspect of life? And that's what I'm here for as your pastor. Not that I have all the answers. Not that I know. I'm, I'm here to help to, to follow that compass with you. Every day of my life, I'm thinking, ah, oh, this is how I feel. This is how I feel. No, the Christ has to be that constant compass. So I'm, that's, that's, what, that's what Paul is calling us to, to embrace that mystery, which is the gospel. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father.